Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're going to be this morning looking at uh, verses 16 through to 32, but I'm going to start um, just from the beginning of Mark 15, just for the sake of context. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. That should remind you of Psalm 22. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, when we come to a passage like this, we ask for forgiveness that our hearts and our minds just cannot grasp 
the weight and the depth that is here. Lord, help me to communicate your truth this morning in such a way that it would cause us to want to live for Jesus all the more. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, we are in the final hours of Jesus' life. Last week we saw the wicked trial of Jesus enacted by the God, uh, godless Pilate and the wicked mob. We saw the moral compromise of Pilate and the irrational demands of the mob. And all of this, of course, led to Pilate's decision to hand Jesus over to be crucified. He had him scourged, and in verse 15, we're told that he, Pilate, delivered him to be crucified. Now, despite the appearance of these events unfolding due to the decision-making of the religious leaders, Pilate, and the crowd, we know that what was ultimately dictating these events was the sovereign redemptive plan of God and Jesus' willing submission to that plan. Everything that was unfolding was not because of Pilate, but because of Jesus willingly surrendering himself to the will of God with the purpose of redeeming the world. Last week, we saw the unjust trial, and this morning, we are looking at the first half of his crucifixion. Now, there are so many truths from verses 16 to 38 that I thought it would be better to break up this section over two Sundays. And so today, we're looking at the mocking of Jesus and his crucifixion, and next week, we'll look at his actual death when he actually dies. And so Pilate has Jesus scores, and then he delivers him to be crucified. And it's here where we see Jesus' encounter with the soldiers in verse 16 to 20. And what I want us to see in these verses is Jesus, the beautiful king. Jesus, the beautiful king. They lead Jesus away. They led Jesus away inside the palace, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they begin to mock him in verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. It's interesting that in chapter 14, 16 to, uh, chapter 14, verse 65, we're told that the religious Sanhedrin spat on him, struck him, and mocked him. Their mockery was a religious reason. He claimed to be the Son of God. And now here, the Roman soldiers mock Jesus for a political reason. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Both the Jews and the Gentiles participated in the mockery of Jesus. The soldiers clothe him in a purple cloak, a, a color for royalty, and they, they place that crown of thorns upon his head. Not only was Jesus in anguish for the scourging, but now thorns piercing into his head, blood flowing down his forehead. And after they dressed him up as a king, they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they strike his head with a reed which already had the crown of thorns upon it. Imagine that reed hitting that crown of thorns. And they spat on him and got on their knees to pay homage to him. This was not just the saliva of one man, but a full battalion. He's covered 
in human saliva. On the part of the soldiers, this was such a hideous scene. It's a glimpse into the depth of human depravity, and it's ugly. And yet if one looks closely, closely, there's a beauty here like no other. There is such a powerful contrast between the ugliness of these soldiers and the beauty of Jesus. There is nothing beautiful or glorious about a man who is taken against his will and mocked and beaten and humiliated and spat upon. Even if he fights back, no one could watch a scene like that and conclude that's beautiful. But if a man is mocked, spat upon, beaten, willingly, then that paints a different picture. See, if we understand the reason for this happening to Jesus, then there is a glimpse into the beauty and wonder of Jesus. For Jesus was not mocked, spat upon, beaten against his will. This was Jesus, the King of the Jews, willingly embracing this humiliation at the hands of the soldiers because of his love for sinners. In love for us, he was mocked. In love for us, he bore that crown of thorns. In love for us, he allowed that saliva to be splattered on his face. This is such an ugly scene, but it's also a beautiful scene. For here we see the love and humility of our King. And it's only possible to grasp how beautiful his humility is when you understand how great his descent was, when you understand where he came from. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 6-8, when he's unpacking the humility of Jesus Christ, he begins with Christ in glory as the one who is in the very form of God, as he said, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, literally the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, when you understand where Jesus came from, that he sat at the right hand of his Father in glory, and then he descends to the place where he is now in Mark 15, you can only picture how incredible this picture of humility is. What earthly king would ever be willing to endure willingly such humiliation? When viewing the soldiers, one can only see that which is ugly. But when placing your eyes upon that man with that crown of thorns upon his head, one can't help but see the wonder of his beauty. Wynandy states, this scene of mockery, belittlement, and humiliation actually depicts Jesus' splendor, grandeur, and even beauty. This scene is but a prelude to the glory of the cross and the wondrous scene that will unfold beneath it. But it's only those who have eyes, who have the eyes of faith, that can truly see this wonder and beauty. 
It's only those who, by the Spirit of God, can look upon a man with a crown of thorns and blood flowing from his body and respond in adoration and praise. As John Calvin states, For as long as our minds grovel in the world, we look upon his kingliness not only as contemptible, but even as loaded with shame and disgrace. But as soon as our minds rise by faith to heaven, not only will the spiritual majesty of Christ be presented to us so as to obliterate all the dishonor of the cross, but the spittings, scourgings, blows, and other indignities will lead us to the contemplation of his glory. Brothers and sisters, the king I worship wears a crown of thorns. The king you worship wears a crown of thorns, and he wears it willingly. There is more beauty in that crown of thorns than all the crowns of earthly kings arrayed with all kinds of jewels, for that crown of thorns has but one jewel, the jewel of love. Here we see a beautiful, humble king. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. After the soldiers mocked Jesus, we're told in verse 20 that they led him out to crucify him. Mark's account of Jesus' journey to his crucifixion is extremely brief, but there's theological significance to it. We're told in verse 21 that the soldiers compelled a passerby, that is Simon Cyrene, who is coming in from the country to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus, from the scourging, probably had no strength left to carry the cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And so the soldiers forced this Simon of Cyrene to do so. Simon was from a region in North Africa, and most likely he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, as there was a large Jewish population in North Africa. So he probably had never heard of Jesus. He was simply a passerby. But what's interesting is that Mark mentions the names of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And many think that the reason Mark does this is because they became believers in the early church. In fact, one of the apologetics of the gospel writers, that is, the way in which they defend Christianity, or their narrative, or their story, is to mention a person's name, and either their parents or the children's name, so that one could actually go and find them and ask them to testify to the truthfulness of the claims of the gospel writers. And it's possible that that's what Mark's doing here. He's saying, here's Rufus and, and Alexander. Go find them and ask, ask them, did your father carry the cross of Jesus? Now, nevertheless, Simon is forced to carry Jesus' cross while Jesus makes his journey to the place of his crucifixion, which would have been quite a journey. And we're told in verse 22 that they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, this was most likely a place where many criminals were executed by crucifixion. And so historically speaking, we're simply being told where Jesus was taken. But there's also a theological significance to this. Where was Jesus actually taken? Well, we don't know the exact spot. But here's what we do know. He was taken outside the gate of Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling. And that's significant. 
I alluded to this last week when I quoted Hebrews 13, 12 about our call to go to Jesus and bear his reproach. In Hebrews 13, 11 to 14, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then he makes this comparison. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What gate? The gate of Jerusalem, the camp, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you see this? Do you see the comparison? The writer of Hebrews is making a comparison between the animals that were used by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins and Jesus going out of Jerusalem and being crucified. What happened to the animals whose blood was used as a sacrifice for sins? The answer is they were burned outside the camp of the covenant people of God. What happened to Jesus? He was killed outside the gate of the covenant people of God. This is explicitly revealed in the instructions of Leviticus 16, which was the Day of Atonement, which is the center of the Pentateuch. Once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and atone for his own sins and the sins of Israel by sprinkling the blood of these animals on the mercy seat and the other elements. But the bodies of those animals were then taken and burned outside the camp. This is what we read in Leviticus 16, 27. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And we're told here in Hebrews 13 that Jesus was also taken outside the camp, the gate of Jerusalem, where he was slaughtered and killed for what purpose? To sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. He is that sacrificial offering, that sacrifice for sins where his blood is spilt for the sins of his people. And he is taken outside the city, the dwelling place of God, and he is crushed for our sins. He is the sacrificial lamb. In the book, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, if you haven't read that, you need to read it. It's the Bible and then the Chronicles of Narnia. The scene of Aslan's death is extremely powerful. What is often overlooked is how Aslan gets to the stone table where the white witch and all the demonic creatures await him. Aslan isn't taken there. He's not captured Aslan makes his way to the stone table. In the same way, it seems as though Jesus is taken to the place of the skull, but remember this, he makes his way to the place of the skull. But what's even more powerful is that when Aslan arrives, he doesn't use his lion strength and power to attack the witch and the demonic creatures. He doesn't terrify them with his kingly roar. He goes silently to the stone table. It's almost as though he's not acting like a lion. And he's not. He's a lion acting like a lamb. And that's what you have here with Jesus 
take, being taken to Golgotha. The lion of the tribe of Judah will become the sacrificial lamb that is taken outside the camp to sanctify his people through his blood. Which, of course, culminates in the crucifixion itself. Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. Thirdly, we see here that Jesus is not just the beautiful king, but he is the exalted king. He is the exalted king. After the soldiers bring him to Golgotha, there's several small events that Mark records for us. In verse 23, we're told that he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This most likely was a drink to help numb the pain in the senses, but he refused to take it. Jesus would not lessen the agony of his suffering. Further, he wanted to make sure that he was mentally sharp and fully aware of what was happening. He was not seeking to escape the pain, but rather to be obedient to the will of his Father. And after this, we're told in verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Mark tells us that it was the third hour when they crucified him, which was 9 a.m., he also tells us that the soldiers divided his garments and cast lots for them. And this, of course, is a direct reference to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which I read earlier. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now we're going to see this week and next week specifically that Psalm 22 is prophetically explaining Jesus' own death. But even further, Psalm 22 is Jesus' own interpretation of what happens to him. We get his lens. Now, you can even see this in the verse I just read, right? They divided my garments. So they divide his garments and they, then they crucify him. You know, one of the things I always have found perplexing in the crucifixion narratives is just how little the authors actually speak to the crucifixion itself. They tell us that Jesus was crucified, but they go into very little detail about crucifixion. They don't explain the process of the crucifixion, all that's involved, how they get them on the cross. They don't explain the physical agony that it would have caused upon his body. His physical suffering is mentioned, but it's not the focus of any of the gospel narratives. And one needs to ask why. Well, it's possible that it's not all that mentioned because the people would have been very familiar with the physical horrors of crucifixion. They understood what was involved with crucifixion. And that's probably true. But I think it's more than that. Many other men suffered from the physical agonies of crucifixion. It's not like it was just Jesus. In fact, we're told that there were two other men who were also crucified with Jesus. The physical agony of Jesus' death isn't unique. It's excruciating, it's horrific, but it's not unique. It's interesting that there's a great focus on the mocking of the crowds and the religious leaders than there is on the physical agony of the crucifixion. Because the significance of Jesus' death does not ultimately reside in the physical agony of the cross, but in the meaning of the cross. 
Yes, the physical agony reveals the depravity of human sin, and it reveals the incredible love that Jesus has for sinners. But it's the meaning of his death and crucifixion that actually makes his death significant. Without the theological meaning behind it, he's just another man who's died in a horrific way. And what's interesting is that Mark reveals the significance and the meaning of Jesus' death through the words of those who were hostile to him. We first saw it in the mocking of the soldiers in verse 18, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They're mocking him, but the irony is, they proclaimed the truth. He was and is the King of the Jews. And you see this again in the actual crucifixion with the inscription that was placed above his head by Pilate himself in verse 25 to 26. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate did this, of course, to mock the Jews. He hated the Jews. He didn't believe this. But the irony is, He proclaimed to the world that Jesus was the king of the Jews. A Roman pagan governor has become a witness for Jesus Christ. Do you remember Caiaphas' prophecy about Jesus in John 11.50? There's a council amongst the religious leaders on what to do with Jesus. And Caiaphas prophesies not realizing what he had said. And this is what he prophesied. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, that is, he's speaking to his fellow religious brothers, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He prophesied that. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So the two men who are primarily responsible for the death of Jesus in a human manner both prophesied and proclaimed truth concerning Jesus. Caiaphas proclaimed that Jesus would die for the people. Pilate proclaimed by inscription, Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is not a question mark, but a declarative statement. You see, the crowd's mocking of Jesus being a king has behind it an if, right? If you're the King of the Jews, save yourself and come down. From below, the crowds mock in unbelief. If you're the king. But over Jesus' head, there is no if, but a declarative sentence. The king of the Jews. Matthew Henry states, they set a superscription over his head, the king of the Jews. Here was no crime alleged, but his sovereignty owned. Perhaps Pilate meant to cast disgrace upon Christ as a baffled king or upon the Jews as a people that deserve no better a king. However, God intended it to be the proclaiming event of Christ upon the cross, the king of Israel. Whenever we look unto Christ crucified, we must remember the inscription over his head that he is a king. Now I said here in the third point in this moment that Jesus is the exalted king. 
And you may be wondering, why is he the exalted king here? Isn't this his humiliation? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus isn't exalted, sorry. Jesus isn't exalted here, he's being humbled, so how can you say he's the exalted king? Here's why. Because his humiliation is his exaltation. Or you could say it like this, his humiliation is the grounds for his exaltation. Just think about this experientially before I show you the scriptures to affirm it. Why do you worship, adore, exalt in Jesus? What was it that caused you to believe upon Christ to love him and follow him? Was it none other than his crucifixion and his humiliation? Were not his sufferings what caused you to see his unfathomable love for you? Is not him hanging on a tree that which causes our hearts to exalt in him? Do you remember Jesus' words in John 12, 32 to 33 in reference to his death? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's his humiliation, his suffering, his death that draws people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to himself. Across the world, there are people who gather to exalt in a crucified king. Though this is his humiliation, it is also his moment of glory and exaltation. You remember Revelation 5, I think one of the best chapters in all the scriptures, which, which we read to each other this morning when we, when we called each other to worship. John has this glorious vision and the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is found worthy to open the scroll that is in the right hand of God. And when John looks to see the lion, he sees what? A lamb as though it had been slain. But why is this lamb, why is Jesus worthy to open the scroll? Why does Jesus receive exaltation and praise in heaven? Well, this is what we read. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is Jesus worthy? Here it is. Why is he worthy, worthy of our worship, our praise, and our exaltation? Why? Here it is. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is why Jesus here in Mark 15, though it is his humiliation, it is in fact his exaltation. He is the exalted king. As Wynandi states, while the wagging heads of boisterous Gothwine mocking and taunting have long since fallen into silence, 
The silent inscription tacked upon a dead tree continues to echo throughout the ages and will find its full voice when Jesus returns in glory. Here we see Jesus, the exalted king. Fourth and final point, we also see Jesus, the selfless savior. Jesus, the selfless savior. While he was there hanging upon the cross, The people mocked him from below. Even the two robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. Part of the shame of crucifixion was actually the mocking of it all. It was a common practice for the people to walk by the crucified. Remember, many of the crucified would be on the cross for days. They would walk by the crucified and hurl insults at them. So what's happening here with Jesus is normal in the sense that others who had been crucified were mocked as well. But what they're mocking Jesus for captures who Jesus is. That he is, in fact, the selfless Savior. Not only did the two robbers revile him, but we're told in verse 29 that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you claim to have the power to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, surely you can get off that cross. You see the irony here, right? Little do they know that Jesus on that cross is the means by which the temple will become obsolete. And in his resurrection, he will become the new meeting place between God and man. But the mocking doesn't end with them. The religious leaders want to get their turn in as well. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Did you notice that the religious leaders ironically admit that Jesus actually saved others? He saved others. He cannot save himself. But it's here in this moment where the selflessness of Jesus or the love of Jesus is on full display. They want him to prove who he is by saving himself. If you're the Christ, save yourself. But Jesus proves who he is by refusing to save himself. In his refusal to come down from that cross, he was revealing himself to be the selfless savior of the world, the suffering servant who would die for all, the one who acts and dies for the sake of others, not self. You see, these last words of the chief priests, I believe, was Satan's last attempt in bringing Jesus down by temptation. These words, verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, is the last temptation Jesus faces before his death. Will he save himself and prove who he is, or will he die for the sins of the world? As Wynandy states, 
Once again, the temptation that has haunted Jesus from his initial counter with Satan has returned. If you are the Son of God, turn stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the temple's pinnacle and all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours if only you will worship me. Jesus can once more hear Peter's seductive words rising up from the deriding crowd below. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Far be it that you should be handed over, suffer and be crucified. Here is what lays before Jesus on that cross. Will he save himself or will he save others? And because of who he is, the selfless Savior, he stays hung upon that cross and dies for the sins of the world. See, I don't think we understand just how glorious this selfless act is on the part of Jesus. Most human beings are willing to be selfless to a certain degree. That is, so long as it doesn't cost them anything too serious. When, um, when Gracie and I were in BC in the summer, I told you guys that we hiked up Mount Chiam. And um, th- this story is a, a perfect example of two people from the city who know nothing about hiking a mountain and decide all we need is to get some hiking boots, so we buy some hiking boots. But this um, hike, you got to drive about 15 kilometers up the mountain before you actually get to the trail. It's a five-kilometer hike to the top and five kilometers back. But on the way, the hardest part of the whole thing is the drive. Um, because as you go along, there's these awful moments where the road just disappears. Like, it just drops and goes up because of the water. And so you need an all-wheel drive, basically, to get up, an SUV or a truck. We had a, a RAV4, but it wasn't all-wheel drive. And so it was our friends, and they let us borrow it. And so we thought, like, wow, let's try it anyways. I love a challenge when it comes to driving. Um, so that's the only part of me that feels remotely manly is just getting in the car and driving. But um, So we're doing this, and we're going up, and as we, we go up, there's these dips. And you have to take these dips on an angle because if you go right over them, your, your whole bottom of your car is just going to get ripped apart. So you got to go down like this and then up. So we're going, and we're enjoying it. But the further you go up, the worse it gets. It just, it's like bigger and bigger and bigger. At one point, I'm turning to go down this and my right tire is literally hanging in the air. Okay, so that, that's what you're dealing with. So we're going up and I'm starting to get nervous now, not because I'm scared, but because it's not our car. <laughs> and, um, and Gracie's on the side, she's fasting and praying, Lord, protect the car, protect the car. And at one point, I'm just like, Gracie, this, like, we do not want to damage their car, so let's just get out of the car, and we'll hike the rest of the way up to get to the trail. We had already been an hour on this road, and so I thought it's probably less than a kilometer away. So we start hiking with our boots and our one water bottle, and um, it's just not coming. It's far. And I'm like, I don't know if we're going to make, make it to the trail. And thankfully, by God's providence, because he had mercy on us, this family drives past us, and he has an off-roading truck. It was amazing. He had two spots left. He let us jump in. He drove us all the way to the top, to the beginning of the trail. But we are already exhausted, and now we got five kilometers to hike. We're almost out of water. <laughs> and he says to me, hey, I'll give you some more water. And I said, no, don't worry about it, man. Like, I don't want you to run out of water. And he then responds to me truthfully. He says, he says, I wouldn't give you this water if we didn't have more than enough. <laughs> and I, 
you know, it was truthful, it was honest, and I was preaching, if he did give us water. But the point of the matter is, he wasn't willing to give us water if he knew it was a risk to himself. He gave us water, very kindly, but if he didn't have enough, there's no way he would have given us that water. Right? What he was really saying is, if it comes down to it, I'm going to save myself before I save you. That is how the majority of humans operate. And when humans operate opposite of that, that is when they sacrifice themselves for others. It's usually all over the news because it's so uncommon and rare and people are always amazed at such an act of sacrifice. Why do we honor our soldiers? Because we know they make the ultimate sacrifice. See, if Jesus had only one bottle of water, and if he needed that water and he saw Gracie and I with no water, he still would have given us the water. Because that's who he is. He's the selfless Savior. And in choosing to not save himself, he saves others. He is the selfless Savior. And so we've seen that Jesus is the beautiful King. Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the exalted King. Jesus is the selfless Savior. But how ought we respond? Well, I think we're to respond in all the ways the characters in the story responded but with genuine worship and devotion. What do I mean? Well, the religious leaders say that if Jesus comes down from the cross, they will believe. Now, of course they won't. They saw Jesus raise the dead and still didn't believe. But what they say they will do is what every single one of us should do if we haven't yet. You should believe upon the King and Savior of the world, for he has died for the sins of the world. As John tells us in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You ought to believe if you have not believed yet this morning. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not only that, we ought to worship Jesus we're told that the soldiers saluted him, hail king of the Jews, and they knelt down in homage to him. Now, of course, it was all mockery. But we ought to kneel before him and pay him homage and worship him with sincerity and full abandon. This beautiful king is worthy of our worship and devotion. And finally, we're told that Simon Cyrene of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross. Compelled to carry the cross. Luke tells us that the soldiers seized Simon and forced him to carry the cross. Simon did not carry that cross out of love and devotion for Jesus. He may have later, 
But a true follower of Jesus willingly and joyfully takes up his cross and follows after Jesus. Luke tells us that that Simon was actually carrying the cross behind Jesus. That is, he was carrying the cross while following Jesus till till Golgotha, the place of the skull. Is that not a perfect portrait of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The Christian willingly and obediently takes up his cross because his Savior took up his cross for him. To be a Christian is to be a cross bearer. Listen to these words by Thomas Akempis on cross bearing. Why are you afraid to take up your cross? It is your road to the kingdom of Christ. In the cross lies our salvation, our life. In the cross we have a pouring in of heavenly sweetness, a strengthening of our minds and spiritual joy. In the cross is the peak of virtue, the perfection of holiness. There is no salvation for our souls, no hope of life everlasting, but in the cross. Take up your cross then and follow Jesus and you will go into life that has no end. He has gone ahead of you, bearing his own cross. On that cross he has died for you that you may bear your own cross and on that cross yearn to die. If you have died together with him, together with him you will have life. If you have shared his suffering, you will also share his glory. Believe, worship, and bear your cross. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for always wanting to avoid the cross. For always wanting you to relieve us of our burdens and our trials. For it's in the cross and bearing our cross where we find true life and we are able to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Give us courage to take up our cross and follow hard after Jesus Christ. Give us hearts of worship to love and adore him all the days of our lives. And give us faith that we may believe that he is the Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. We pray this in his most precious name. Amen.